wrong button. All right. This evening, I'd like to speak about the universal, the three universal marks of existence. And sometimes I know when I was younger in the Dharma, I would hear these kinds of talks and a lot of it would just go over my head. But I would keep patient, keep listening, and um, just sort of hold that understanding as maybe muddled as it might have been in the beginning, just back there in the heart-mind. And when experiences would come, then I would match them up with the understanding. And that would make all the difference. And so sometimes when I'd hear it over this, these same talks over and over again, they would um, match up with newer experiences, and they would become even more deeply profound for me. So this is one of those talks that used to go over my head, (laughs) but I I can say a few things about them um, after 40 years of practice. I'm remembering that during a few of my check-ins with Sayadaw Pandita, he would ask, not only to me, but other yogis, what color glasses are you wearing today, Yogi Kamala? What color glasses? Meaning, what is the lens that you're seeing life through? Is it through the lens of right view or wrong view? Is it through the lens of aversion or attachment? And so, at first I didn't know what he was talking about. And then, um, as I understood more deeply through my practice, he was really (coughs) asking me, what is the attitude of the mind that was there? another way that one of our teachers has put it recently. And he was really wanting to know if I was doing the practice as properly as I could, seeing things as they really are, seeing things clearly, which develops that liberating wisdom bit by bit as we go along in our practice. As all of you know, and and there are many uh, of you here who have been practicing mindfulness for quite a while. Some of you are relatively new to the practice, and some of you are even imparting it in your professional ways of being in life. And it's gotten a lot of attention during these recent years. So when I was uh, putting this talk together, I quickly looked on Amazon Books to start Uh, to see how many books were written about mindfulness. And when I got to 100 plus, I stopped. I mean, honestly, there were like mindfulness of this, mindfulness of that. For example, uh, there was mindfulness for dummies. Um, (laughs) There's, you know, all kinds of things for dummies, but even mindfulness for dummies. And there was mindfulness for aging, for raising children, Uh, usually about improving one's happiness in life or about being more present, more creative, less addictive. And uh, now in in America we have football where there are, you know, quarterbacks. I don't know what you... Do you know what I mean? They even had mindfulness for quarterbacks. (laughs) (laughs) I was really surprised about that one. And then, of course, they had the more traditional books by, you know, the lay lay people, Sharon Salzberg, Christina Feldman, and um, Joseph Goldstein, and also, of course, uh, Bhatti Gunaratna has a lot of important books out there. Recently, uh, Uteshinia wrote a book or has a book out called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And I I liked uh, that he made that title, because we talked it over one afternoon when he was teaching at the Forest Refuge, and I happened to be there for a month as a student. And um, he said he was going to write about awareness. And one of his Dharma talks, he said, it's not just about awareness. It's about becoming wise, seeing life from the lens of wise view with awareness. 
and awareness actually brings that forth. And so I said, um, Seadal, the name of your book should be Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And so it's sort of, he had a kind of a different name. But anyway, he kind of stuck with it because that's what he's teaching. That it's not just about being mindful, being present. That gives a lot of ease in our lives and a lot of wonderful moments of not worrying about the past, not going into the future. Of course, that's very, very beautiful and wonderful. But that alone isn't going to get us through life to a place of feeling liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. And so this is the most important part of our practice, to gain the wisdom that liberates us from the places of suffering in our lives. And the Buddha wasn't talking about the everyday kind of suffering, although that's included. But the Buddha was talking about the deep suffering and pain that we have because of not seeing life clearly. And then, of course, because of not seeing life clearly, we're not living in alignment with how life truly is. So when mindful awareness is practiced, of course, one can become calm, one can become more focused, more creative. That's all good. But it doesn't liberate the mind just to be in the present moment. That's a kind of a very elementary step. It helps you to see more deeply into the nature of reality. And so what vipassana, our practice, has to do with is really mindfulness that has to do with the liberation of greed, hatred, and delusion. So we need to do the practice with right thought, right view, right attitude of mind. And this is what we're learning in this kind of practice of vipassana. So when you practice with vipassana, mindful awareness with these two qualities of right view uh, and right right thought, uh, that helps us have insight into the true nature of reality. And that is what liberates the mind, actually. So I spoke before at the very beginning how it would be more precise when we're um, meditators and kind of in this realm, not uh, mindfulness alone, but when we're in this realm of really understanding deeply that mindfulness can liberate the mind and the heart from greed, hatred, and delusion. That we need to describe our practice to others in a different way. So usually, um, in the West, we call this insight meditation. I'm repeating something I uh, imparted to you earlier in the retreat. But actually, we need to call this satipatthana vipassana bhavana. That is the whole description of what we're doing here. It's not just mindfulness. It's not just insight. But it's both together. It's mindfulness and insight. They're really two different things. You need to have mindful attention to bring the insight into the, new, uh, into the reality of all of life. So satipatthana, in that word, sati means fullness of mind. That's the part that means mindfulness. And pa means extraordinary mindfulness. So uh, Upandita would say, it's not the kind of mindfulness that you're, you're just present with life. It's really seeing deeply into the nature of every moment and really seeing these three universal characteristics. Tana means the foundation upon which mindfulness is set, set in the present moment. And so the Buddha uh, talked about the four foundations of mindfulness, and there are the body, Vedana, which we, we practice this morning, feelings, um, and then there's consciousness, and then there's uh, dhammas, and all, Manindra used to explain that fourth one is everything else that we experience in life. And it's usually uh, organized into different kinds of teachings, like the Four Noble Truths, the Five Aggregates, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, um, things like that. That's what the fourth, fourth foundation kind of is comprised of. Uh, so vipassana um, is the insight that reveals the deeper truths of life. 
impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and this impersonal nature of all experience, which basically are the three universal characteristics, which I'll fill out um, during this talk. Bhavana is a cultivation or the development of mind. Bhavana means cultivation. So what we're cultivating is a mind and heart that can have the qualities that are able to see through the illusion of solidity, the illusion of self, and the illusion of the uh, thought that something is going to bring eternal satisfaction to us. So this bhavana is um, divided into two parts. It's a cultivation of concentration, and also the constant, uh, development of wisdom. Those two are included in the bhavana part. So in the West, we've shortened that to insight, insight meditation. So that insight uh, into this uh, liberating wisdom, maybe some of you have heard the words in Pali, yata bhutta, Y-A-T-H-A, and then bhutta. B-H-U-T-A. It translates into something more profound than those two words can actually describe. It means knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Yata Buddha. And this is what the mind comes to see when it can get really quiet, really still, the ability for concentration and wisdom to pierce through all these illusions and delusions that we have about life. So more completely, living our lives in alignment with knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. So we come to live in alignment with that, not just know it, but live our lives so we take that into consideration when we're living our lives. We live our lives in the most, with the most integrity we can, following the precepts of non-harming on this personal level of life, which is a, -level on the, a level of uh, reality on the personal relative level of life. There is a relative level of life. And on that level of life, we live in the relativity of that there is a self. And that's, we, it's not that there's no self and it wipes out that relative level. You'll see, um, hopefully, you'll understand why understanding no self makes the level of relativity and the level that we live in in this kind of um, understanding that there is a self, a sense of self here, that we have to live with the utmost integrity in life of non-harming. So it's all included there in the not-self understanding also. So yata bhuta, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. And all of this uh, understanding the relative and the absolute can lead us to kind of an unconditional peace in our daily lives. And of course it doesn't happen all of a sudden. It happens at levels of understanding bit by bit in our practice. So seeing things as they really are means seeing them consistently in light of the three marks of existence or the three universal characteristics, which are seeing anicca, the impermanence of life, anatta, the not-self characteristic that is part of life, and uh, dukkha, understanding the unsatisfactory nature. They are called universal because these three marks of existence refer to all, uh, all of life, every aspect of this life on the conditional realm, on this uh, level of existence. So you'll hear, and many of you have heard over and over again because you've been in the Dharma for many years, some of you, and we'll hear these terms anicca, dukkha, anatta, or anatta. So I'd like to kind of fill them out in a, in a practical way for you, since um, there are some of you who are fairly new to the Dhamma here, and it, it's helpful to know what those terms mean when we hear them spoken by, by the teachers. 
So anicca means all conditioned things, all things in this level, relative, relational level of existence, conditioned things, all sankharas, that means all volitional formations, are subject to arising and passing away. They come into existence, they're constantly in flux, and they cease from existence. So this is what all the the directions, the guidance in the morning is leading you to over and over again, to see this deeply. And we come to see it in in our own ways, uh, more and more deeply at more and more profound levels. Dukkha, uh, because of anicca, therefore all conditioned things, all sankharas on this conditional realm of existence, are unsatisfactory because everything is unstable, because it's moving and changing and can't be relied upon to provide lasting happiness. So where can we find in this realm of existence something that's going, we're going to catch, hold on to, say stay here, and this is going to give me lasting happiness. This, whatever the condition is in life, whatever the feeling is, whatever we're holding on to in terms of any material thing, um, it's going to go away eventually, or we're going to go away before it does. So all conditioned things cannot be relied upon to provide any lasting happiness or security. This is really hard for us to hear because we're born into a society, into a world, into a world that thinks there is something. So we keep looking for it. We kind of, this is what, um, you know, that uh, this hedonic treadmill is all about that we keep looking for something and it's not that so we look for something else or another one of those things and that isn't it either and we just keep going along looking for something that's going to be forever lasting whether it's something um, material or it's something like a, a relationship or you know our families are going to be in this way all the time and it just doesn't happen and we live in the delusion that it would so it constantly disappoints us that's why there's dukkha and then there is anatta that all dhammas all realities are anatta not self it is said this way because there's one reality that's referred to which is not a conditional reality and that is Nibbana, that's uh, the unconditioned. So that's a kind of, um, uh, you don't have to memorize that, but <laughs> all Dhammas, not all Sankharas, but all Dhammas are Anatta. So the Buddha teaches that life can be correctly understood with these three characteristics in view, which is wise view, but only if these basic facts are understood experientially, not just in a logical um, manner. We, we frequently can understand it kind of theoretically, but in practice what we're coming to do is understand it because there is the actual experience of it. And this is deep, this is profound when that happens. It could happen in ways that are unexpected. In, in our lives. Not to see them, it said in, in the text, not to see them in this way is the defining mark of ignorance. Not to see life as anicca, dukkha, nata is a defining mark of ignorance. And ignorance meaning to say that we're ignoring how the truth really is. So I'm not speaking about any of us, of course, but <laughs> we're, we're constantly looking for something that's not there. You know, that's something that's going to give some lasting happiness, and, um, and this self is going to provide it. But when we see things more deeply, it isn't like that at all. So what we come to understand is this wise view of life, 
but also understand the integrity that we have to have on this uh, life of relational um, level of life, this relative level of life. So all that I'm talking about might be part of the uh, absolute, the ultimate level of understanding things. And it's possible to understand things at that level, the ultimate, uh, absolute level of life, and have that integrated with the relational, with the relative. It's not separate and apart. Actually, when one understands the uh, ultimate, absolute, it contains the relational. Why? Because wise view also contains not harming any living being through speech and behavior. And what the, what the Buddha taught in terms of meditation is seeing how our own thoughts harm us. And because of our thoughts, it goes out into action and uh, speech. So every level needs to be purified. So the Buddha was a kind of a teacher that didn't just proclaim these things and expect us to have a blind understanding or blind belief in them. He's recommending that we use this methodology of satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana to see for ourselves. So in the Dhamma you hear a lot of this saying, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Not just believe what is put out there in the texts and the suttas or what uh, teachers may say about it, but see for yourself. This is a kind of faith that um, we're asked to have. It's faith through experience, not through blind belief or even bright belief, where we're depending on another person to hold that understanding and we can praise that other person but really not understand it for ourselves. So I think I told you the other evening that uh, Manindra used to tell his students that the Buddha solved his problem. Now you have to solve your own. And this is when, you know, not only myself, but someone else, other students would kind of expect him to do the work for you and not really expect you to do the work for yourself. Um, if people came to Manindra and they would say, oh, I can't do it, this is, and kind of expect him to maybe do some, you know, bhakti power or something like that, <laughs> he, he just was just very down to earth, would never do that for anyone. And um, I, I remember being with him when people would come to him and say, oh, well, I think I'm just going to walk around the, Himalayas, and I'll, I'll come, I'll come back and do the practice another time when I've climbed a few mountains or something. And he, he would, if people weren't interested, he would say, "Go ahead, you know. Um, if, if you don't come back, that's up to you. I, I'm not going to convince you of anything." And so um, he would just let them go, and if they, when they wanted to practice, that was up to them. So he he encouraged students to have faith in our own abilities to carry out the practice and to test it out for ourselves. But along the way, we really have to hear wise view. This is something that was said by the Venerable Sariputta, one of the great two disciples of the Buddha. Hearing wise view from the voice of another or reading it is important. To, to really understand the teachings. Because, for example, those who lived in the Buddha's time, the disciples that came around the Buddha right after the Buddha was enlightened, um, they had to hear it from the Buddha in order to see life a different way. Because otherwise, we'll just continue living in the kind of niches of our minds in the same way over and over again until somebody says, can you see it this way? And um, you know, when I first heard about the notion of anatta, not self, I just thought, how could that be? You know, I, I can't really grasp that. Can't wrap my mind around that. But as it was kept being handed down to me over the years, I came to understand. Oh yeah, 
I can see how that is through anicca, can see how that is, and even through dukkha, how that is, how anatta can be really understood experientially. And so it takes hearing wise view from the voice of another or reading it uh, ourselves. And so this is what we we're doing when we come to a, a Dhamma retreat like this, is we're hearing the wise view. I'm, I'm imparting it to you, channeling it from all my teachers, and we're practicing it all the time, doing the best we can. And then it also takes wise attention. So it's these two things, hearing wise view from the voice of another who's somewhat, who has understood to some degree experientially, uh, and wise attention. This is the practice we're doing here together. It includes reflecting on what was heard or read in a curious, interested way, being really awake to what the discernment is in, in our practice. Seeing, for example, you might have noticed that I kept trying to point out you different to different individuals of you and maybe here in the group. Oh, so you're seeing the cause and effect relationship. This is pointing out how you're coming along in your practice when you really see that there is there are conditions, there are causes and there are effects. And what happens is these come together sometimes and we put a sense of an idea of self over it and we say, oh, this is what I call self. But when actually you're seeing it very separate and discreetly, here are the conditions, here are the causes, and here are the effects. And your mind is coming to see by experience. Experientially, uh, bit by bit, it's starting to go through the process of breaking up what this sense of self is all about. And also to see, oh, this is the this is how the body works, and this is how the mind's relationship to the body is. There's pain in the body, there's awareness of it, and then there's a relationship of the mind to that pain, and there's awareness of that, and all of these come together and we say, oh, this is myself. I mean, that's a simple way to put it. It, it gets a little more complex than that. But we put a, an appellation, an idea over it that this is myself. But actually, when we're experiencing it moment by moment by moment, we're, not, we're actually not having that view during those moments. That view is totally out of the picture. And it's, it, the realization of right view is happening over and over again until we get lost in a story and we solidify a sense of self around that story. Do you see how getting lost in stories solidifies again the sense of self? Okay, there is a sense of self in those stories. Um, but what you're coming to the Dhamma for is to realize something more deep than that. And this is what it is. Because then we learn to live in alignment with that in our lives. And that has long, far-ranging ramifications when we come to understand those things. So it's not just about being still, being calm, being present with this foot, being present with that foot. I mean, that's really wonderful, but if that's all it brings, then that's not very deep, actually. We really need to have the wisdom that comes from the deepening into those experiences. So, um, during the beginning of my practice, I heard so many teachings and I really didn't understand. I sometimes wished so much I could grok it better. I could really take it in and, and things could... My life was, like you all, probably 99.9% .9 of you have come to the Dhamma for, because of suffering. Am I right? <laughs> or something like, you can't just come because you think it's going to be good food and free food or whatever. It, there's something, you, you come for something deeper than that. But uh, when I came to the Dhamma, uh, you know, it was, there was a lot of suffering in my life. And um, 
it's no different than yours, you know, I'm not special. But uh, then when I heard the Dhammas, it really made sense right away to me because it kind of fit in to current way of being and uh, the first noble truth, you know, dukkha satcha. So I had to be so patient for experience to happen, an actual practice that would connect the new dots, you know, the new things that I heard that actually fit practice because I was practicing, had that wise attention, and then there would be different levels or layers or perspectives of seeing things in a different way. Oh, that's the way it is, you know. And sometimes I didn't know why I thought about it that way. But then later on, I'd live my life and I thought, would think, and I'd look back and think, oh, that's why I said that, what I said. For example, when I was going through one of my first um, retreats with Seda Upandita, there was there were different things that kind of opened up. It was a really watershed time in my practice. And um, at the end of the practice, one of the things he said is like, oh, it wasn't quite the end. It was, um, it was still a time of uh, a bit of turmoil, but kind of getting towards the end of the time I was there. And he said, um, you know, to make my report, and I said, I don't know, I don't quite understand this, but um, the thought of being a mother is like, it, it's, it doesn't hook up to reality. It, it's just these conditions that there are these children. I mean, I couldn't believe I was saying this because I was so identified with being a mother. I was a single mother. And I was saying, I, I just don't understand about mother because I'm not mother and my mother is not my mother. It's just all these conditions that happened that came together and all of a sudden the dots, you know, the dots were all apart and then they connected and I, I could have a view of it that was completely new but I didn't know what was happening. It was a little bit of a scary moment, but that's why, you know, he's such a strong teacher. It kind of kept me together. And I, and I was, that sense of self, that strongest identification I had in my life of being a mother was totally broken up. And, um, and that's because it was just seeing how things as they are, moment to moment to moment. And I wasn't making um, I wasn't putting an appellation of this is me, this is mine, this is who I am in every moment. It was just this and the awareness of it, then that in the awareness of it, then this and the awareness of it. And things were having more space between the objects and the awareness of it. And it was just all breaking up. But that those that actually it wasn't that I lost my sense of responsibility for being a mother. That was still there. But it was like there was a new understanding about what does this really mean in human life. There was a beginning of an opening of that. And during that time, I remember I had heard this talk on the five aggregates of clinging so many times by the time I had had that experience. And there, there was one time when I heard it that um, actually it was a student teacher that was giving that talk on the five aggregates of clinging. How many of you know of that, the Dhamma talk? Yeah. And so this is about the five components of what we call self that uh, are part of um, this existence, let's say. And so there's five component parts. I'm just going to give this in very brief. And the first one is body, and the second one is um, perceptions, and the third one is feelings, that feeling tone that I talked about. And the fourth one is sankharas, or volitional formations, and the uh, which includes intentions, 
and the fifth one is consciousness or knowing itself and those in practice kept breaking up they just didn't they weren't forming any solid thing and then i could see i could see the practice became aware of each one of those things individually and how the mind just would take an idea of self and cover over it and say oh this all together makes myself okay that's comfortable because it makes a self and then i realized oh my god the self is just an idea and that may be kind of shocking to you as i say that but that's how it was experienced of course there was no god there um, sorry uh, <laughs> as I do the sign of the cross, <laughs> coming from a Catholic background. So, but I could see how the mind was clinging to body as a sense of self sometimes. It would cling to perceptions as a sense of self sometimes. It would cling to um, Vedana or this sense of um, feeling tone sometimes. It would cling to intention sometimes, that intention forms these, you know, um, volitional formations it would it would cling to knowing the sometimes and it would cling to all of that together as self so the one time when the student teacher gave a talk on five aggregates I realized oh that's what it was all about and it so it took the experience and then hearing it related directly to the experience and then somehow something was complete and I understood something more completely than I had ever understood it. And more and more as I hear the teachings, they're actually in alignment with how one can understand life in a very practical way if you hear the teachings and you apply them to your experience. It's why it's really important for those of you who have done retreats to take longer retreats because a lot of this a lot of these understandings come out in in longer retreats with your own practice and your hearing you have more time to hear what's going on get the feedback to kind of put together your view your understanding with your experience with the experience so sometimes we need um, to hear it from others so it c relates to experience and sometimes we just need to experience and not need to um, study so much. When I first started to practice, because I didn't have time, I didn't read so much. But, and Manindra told me when I first started to practice, just practice. There were a few books out that I knew of, but he said, don't study, just practice for 10 years and then start to study. And that, that was really helpful information for me. That's, that's what I did. Just, you know, took in, didn't have a lot of time to read, but raising children. So we have to be patient for the actual experience to happen. So connecting new dots, new pieces of information, new pieces of Dhamma can, hap can happen for us. And sometimes the retreats of my own and seeing others, they don't reveal really strong aha moments, but just slowly notice kind of how these understandings seep in. It's, a, it's as if you're in a, in a beautiful fog, in a, in a good way, you know, a beautiful kind of cloud. And you're, you're just kind of in the Dhamma, and it, you just keep doing it with a lot of faith, and all of a sudden you feel soaked with the Dhamma, that it just happens. It's not something that comes in big aha moments. Sometimes um, we need to have the strength to meet what comes up in practice, so that sometimes strong feelings come, sometimes overwhelming things come, that's why we need a teacher nearby to say, you're actually doing fine. You know, these moments of 
not seeing solidity, it doesn't mean that you can't notice um, aversion or attachment or these different defilements. It's, it's just that it's going so fast. You can't see it and make any, any sense out of it. So sometimes um, that's why you need somebody to talk to. So if they've been on the path, they can give you feedback that says, you're doing all right, actually, even though you think you're going crazy. You're, you're doing all right. That was meant to be funny. <laughs> but, <laughs> because don't you feel that way? I mean, maybe you're embarrassed to say, but don't you feel like you're going crazy sometimes? Yeah, because it, there's, it's, a no, it's a whole new world. It's really a whole new world that you begin to see in your life. So we gain knowledge by hearing the Dhamma. We gain knowledge by reflection after hearing it, reflection on hearing from the wise. And we gain knowledge by the meditation that we do, by tranquility, concentration, and insight meditation. So sometimes just remembering the advice of one of my teachers or hearing hearing his voice during a time of a troubled time for me can really relax the mind and that's that's all I need. And then um, during times sometimes I need to understand it so I read the Dhamma or I hear the Dhamma and I can reflect on it more. So of the three universal characteristics, the one that becomes apparent in everyday life is impermanence. That's the one that we really see uh, up close. And on a mundane level, we might take it for granted. For example, if you stopped anybody in the street and you, and you asked, is, is everything, are things impermanent? And, They'd think you're crazy for asking, you know. Of course, you know, the seasons change. It, it, you know, the early morning we have this kind of sunlight, and then later on it goes down, and the stars come out, and it happens day after day. There's change, and we take it for granted. Uh, we don't really grok how deeply profound it is underneath that until we do this kind of practice, till we slow down and the mind sees more deeply into how it's really changing so fast that we can't stop it. Sometimes in practice, there they are particular marks in practice where people, yogis, see just the beginning of something arising. They might see something arising and changing, but sometimes yogis will see how it's just all going away. It's all going away. And um, they think, oh, something's wrong with your practice, but actually you're seeing the incredible quickness of um, impermanence at that time. And nothing's wrong with you. Sometimes you think, my practice is all bad, but nothing's, absolutely nothing's wrong, just seeing the very deep nature of impermanence at that time. So the Buddha taught us to reflect often on things about impermanence, like aging, illness, dying, and death, to keep ourselves in alignment with the truth of that. The sayings, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure to become old, I'm sure to become ill, I'm sure to die. These are important things to reflect on all the time. So even if you're not in the Dhamma for you know, liberating truth, to liberate the mind from greed, hatred, and delusion. As we get older, we understand that we're, maybe we're in the Dhamma for uh, the ability to have a death that's easeful, a death where we're still not hanging on to life. And so that, along with being liberated, is a really important factor for me in, in my life. So these realizations of impermanence are at the mundane level, and even facing loss and loved ones, there are significant moments of letting go, and there are things that we learn uh, how to let go more easily because of them. It helps us live through loss and change and death more easily. 
But in our practice, usually on retreat, even though we're trying to not get so involved in the story content of our lives, we do have these memories that come up. And part of the retreat we'll go through, maybe if it's not now, it could be another time, or it has been for you in the past, we go through a time of seeing impermanence through a personal history review. And actually, this is an important time in our practice when we review with sobering honesty how we've lived through our lives. And so when yogis are going through that, and we, you know, as our lay teachers hear it, we know, yeah, this is part of the reflections um, and the stories that people kind of get caught in, but it's sort of necessary because this is where also we learn impermanence, where we're unpacking old wounds of where we've lived through stages of our lives. A lot of unresolved stuff comes up during this time. The unseen shadow side comes up. And then we have to go through acceptance of what we've been in delusion about. And this acceptance is really important because unless that part of our lives doesn't come to some realization that, okay, all this has happened and a lot of the stuff that we've held on to starts to get released because we're really seeing memories for what they are and living with them, living through our resentment, our grief, our skepticism, and all of that about life, it comes to be known more clearly. So some of us need to do this unraveling the karmic knots at the level of stories. And when I hear that, then I realize this is necessary because it's actually very universal that people go through that. Um, It's not with every single one, of course, but it happens with most people. And a lot of the suffering of selfing happens around this time, where you know there's a great feeling of oh poor me, for example, or oh great me, you know that I got through this. But in time, because we're able to kind of let go of enough of that to go on to see more deeply into the nature of things, that's why it's necessary for us to live through that. But when conditions come together and the continuity of our practice um, is strong, we start to move beyond the personal drama of it all. And that's when vipassana really takes place, when it takes us beyond this level to those universal characteristics. So awareness, insight begins to recognize what's happening at deeper and deeper levels beyond our thoughts and ideas about things. So, for example, and some of this has happened with your own practice here, say a memory comes in your practice, which happens for all of us, and for once we're not caught in the story of it. And that's happened too. With, you know, a lot of you have been able to step back and just see the sadness that comes up, or the regret, or the whatever it was in, that came through that story. It's experienced merely as the energy of a memory moving through time and space. Like I've been um, kind of saying, uh, repeating the poem of Gandhan Rinpoche to you about just like a wave, you know, going through you, over you, and seeing it and feeling it happen and not making anything out of it. It's an energy moving through the body, the mind, like strong weather patterns sometimes. So it's sensed clearly as a changing flux of energy. And it's no longer, the story is no longer interesting. It's more like, it's an old story. There are empty echoes in in the cave of our minds. And it's, you know, just banging back and forth, we, we can just let go of the, um, the details of them and be with that changing flux of energy. Let go of the identification with the story that has cobbled together 
this suffering self over and over again. So perhaps the arising of that energy of thinking is uh, seen at the beginning. Sometimes it's seen as its changing nature. And then in time, we just see that energy, whatever it is, the thought, the feeling behind it, the um, bodily sensation, the, uh, the way the mind is, is, ref- is referring to it. It's sensed as just kind of moving along moving along, moving along. So some of you may have experienced this, but some of you just really keep this in mind because when you do experience it, you'll know that your practice is okay. You don't have to think of it in terms of this was me in the past, this is me now, this will always be me. That's kind of how delusion takes over. But you'll see it as a changing flux of experience. And uh, it peters out somehow because we're not making a sense of self out of it over and over again. So the changing nature is known in that way. Perhaps, you know, a, a, a feeling comes or an emotion comes and some of us feel emotion in our bodies more than kind of somewhere between body and mind, wherever that is. Um, but feeling it in the in the body, how it unfolds, how it's experienced as kind of the elemental nature of coolness, warmth, tightness, hardness, softness, smoothness, prickliness, stabbing, darting, expansion, contraction. All of these are elemental experiences and they're seen just that way. So, a lot of times when you know you'll come to a teacher or maybe I have responded to you it, does, what does it feel like is it tight is it expansive is it um, cool is it heat because the the Dhamma is trying to point you to seeing it just in its um, discrete experience in that moment and not put an idea about self over it. So when the mind starts seeing it that way over and over again, it automatically and spontaneously and naturally lets go of this idea of self. It does that just naturally. You don't have to kind of think it out. It's naturally happening during that time period. So. Awareness and insight are beginning to reveal just how at the deeper levels there's this no solidity to be found anywhere. There's this understanding of emptiness in that respect because there's, there could be something arising and then there's just the awareness of it and in that moment it seems so empty and then another thing arises and just the awareness of it and seen so empty. Nothing is solid. So the impermanent nature begins to reveal the insolidity of everything. So um, where can you hang on? Nowhere. You know, it's just like uh, somebody expressed it as you're trying to hang on to something like you're holding a rope and it's moving so fast that it's giving you rope burn. That's what the dukkha is when you're holding on so tightly. So that's how it's said in the Dhamma, all conditioned things are arising and passing away. Anicca vata sankara. Understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. Why does it do that? Because there is some deep understanding that the mind is now in alignment with nature. It's not trying to fix things anywhere. It's not trying to fixate on things or to fix things as solid or to fix any idea about life that isn't true. So we hear this term, empty phenomena rolling on, and it makes perfect sense then. 
So now understanding this wise view at this level about the emptiness uh, of like the ephemerality of this nature of impermanence doesn't wipe out the importance of respecting the relative or the relational views of life. We, it becomes really, really important to us then because we, we see that this reality, when this emptiness is seen, also the everythingness is seen. And that everythingness means that everything is connected everywhere on this relational, conditional level of life. And when that is seen really deeply, what you want to do is play, pay really close attention to karma that we really do not want to harm or hurt anyone else because it's all connected, nor do we want to hurt our own karmic stream because it's really important to purify this karmic stream of greed, hatred, and delusion. So I love this quote by Kalu Rinpoche, one of the highest and most revered um, teachers in the Tibetan tradition. Kalu Rinpoche. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So the understanding of the uh, relative, the absolute, the ultimate, really starts coming together with the relative and the relational level of life because we understand, we begin to understand how everything's so interconnected. That's not the end of the practice, but it's one of the very important understandings that you get in practice. There is this emptiness of everything and there is this everythingness of everything. And we're so interconnected that we really have to be careful about our thoughts, our words, and our behavior. So one of the things that <clears throat> at the last part of uh, one of my practices, um, when I practiced a lot with Seda Uteshaniya and uh, Upandita, and they both talk about the importance of understanding karma. And there was one time with uh, my practice with Upandita when he said, now that you've understood to this degree what's important to you. And it wasn't about being in bliss or being under, or you know, the whole thing about emptiness. It was totally about karma. So the answer to him was, karma is really important now. Really being careful about my behavior really being careful about my words, really being careful about how my thoughts are playing these out in the world. So realizing, um, understanding, and this intricate interconnection that we have of all of life makes it uh, even the, the deeper understanding about the profundity of anicca, and anatta make this understanding of karma even more profound. Um, Just trying to remember. It'll come back to me. So just want to, um, I think I'm going to end here. And tomorrow, I'm going to give you the rest of this talk because the rest of this talk has to do with dukkha and anatta. So this part has to do with uh, anicca, impermanence. So I'd like to end with um, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. is a great teacher from India. And he said, the real world is beyond our thoughts and ideas. We see it through the net of our desires, divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. To see the universe as it is, you must first step beyond the net. 
It's not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. That's a koan for you to carry you through the next hours. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.